historians speculate, totaled 30,000 in population, would swell in this time to 180,000. The whole periphery of the city edges is full of tents and campers and people making the pilgrimage down to the temple. That is God's house. That is the holy place of the dwelling of His presence on earth. And so Jesus, a man like you or I, is doing that pilgrimage to His Father's house. But it is an image of more than just a man walking. He's riding. Because it is an image of a triumphal procession. That is what we have before us this morning. The triumphal procession of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And on the eastern slopes of this city of Jerusalem, there is the Mount of Olives in which Jesus is approaching. And He takes two of His disciples and sends them on ahead. And He commands them to go find a donkey and one donkey tied with a colt. The child of a donkey. His command was nothing more than there was some sort of preparation He most likely worked out to say, bring them to Me. And if anyone has question of why, simply say, the Lord needs it. Setting the tone. From here on, Jesus will do nothing more than demonstrate His own Lordship. He will demonstrate His own authority. Throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew, He has been keeping secret. He has been keeping quiet. Every miracle He performed, and every time a crowd formed around Him, He would tell them, Shh, don't tell anyone that I healed you. And when crowds assembled, He would disperse them and offend them. No more. Now is the moment where He will accept praises from men. Well, he will take on the title Messiah. Well, he will claim himself to be Lord and he will tell everybody what to do. Because he's coming into his temple. There's a universal desire, we all have it, that we want to win, be, be successful. Nobody uh, aims at pretty much accomplishing anything in this life hoping uh, that they will fail. Right? Unless you could raise your hand if we have any Eeyores. Among us, they do exist. Uh, these personality types uh, you just had maybe a bad experiences in life and you tend to always think everything is bad and negative. And that's true because life is. But there's a real image of success here that you should resonate with. To want to win. To want to do well. To want to succeed. To have prosperity. A proof for this, or example of this, particularly in our culture, would be presidential speeches have a way of codifying the spirit of a generation or an age or a nation or a people. Especially presidential speeches because they are appealing to the people. And so they say things that the people want or hear. And so when you find some of these speeches, the reason I even thought of it in the first place is because of... Uh, President Donald Trump years ago when he was not president, but a president uh, candidate and doing his campaign speeches, 
Obviously, he loves talking about winning. But hear this. Famous speeches we might know of Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, he says, Our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We've all heard that. The Gettysburg Address. This is where Lincoln is saying, the value is freedom. That all men are created equal. That there should be a liberty. Right next to that, in the history of America, you have Kennedy's inaugural address, where he says the same thing about freedom. Fellow Americans, ask not what our co- you can do for your country, or what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America can do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of men. The theme he's hitting at, the freedom of men. But in 2016, and I'm going to try, I practice saying this without trying to laugh in front of you, but I'm going to quote Donald Trump, and I love this. It's thoroughly entertaining. entertaining. In a speech with a crowd going crazy, which was a rally, because people like this a lot, he says, we're going to win so much. You may even get tired of winning. And you'll say, please, please, it's too much winning. We can't take it anymore. Mr. President, it's too much. (laughs) And I'll say, no, it's not. We've got to keep winning and win more. That's just, that's great. (laughs) That's great. I mean, come on. If you want to win, just vote that way. How else can you argue against that? It's funny, but it's true. It, he, he is striking a nerve in the heart. We want to win. We want to win. We'll have rallies over winning. We don't even know what we want to win, but we want to win it. Whatever it is, we have to win. In the ancient world, Nike was a goddess of victory. We would maybe say Nike. But they called a goddess of victory that athletes and warriors would pay tribute to so that they would have success. So that they would win. They would bow at the statue of a woman, a goddess, Nike, who had curved wings that looked almost like a swoosh that you see on the side of a shoe. She's the goddess of victory. We idolize it. We want it. Whenever an athlete in the ancient world would succeed and win a race, an Olympic athlete, they would be given a palm branch, a sign of victory they would hold on a stadium. See, here we're tempted particularly with this idol that is before us. Have you ever encountered her? This desire to be ahead, the desire to be above, to be successful, distinguished, praised, and proud. The desire to win. The desire to be victorious, triumphant. It is a hard idol to serve. We know the stories, they're very common, of Olympic athletes who spend their whole life doing one thing 
swimming down that one line in the pool, running down that one line in the track. Since they were small children, very early in the morning, every day of their life, no parties, no friends, no fast food, they run. And they win. But then they get old. And they get tired. And they get fat. And then they get depressed. Because they have given themselves, if they didn't watch their heart, to an idol of stone that cannot love them back. They have not loved the living God who is love. See, what we have here is Jesus. The desire for victory, of course, is good. No one starts a business and thinks, I hope it fails. No one enters a race to hope they will fall. No mother raises children hoping that they will turn out poorly. There's no defeat mentality. Proverbs 22:29 biblically says, You see a man great in his work, he will stand before kings. Do good. Be great at what you do. Jesus particularly calls us as disciples in Luke 14. He says, count the costs if you're going to follow me. See, one man building a tower does not sit first and then count to see if he can complete and lay the foundation. For he doesn't have enough to build so as to succeed, people will look at him and ridicule him and say this man could not finish. He is a loser. Or Jesus says, one king wants to go out to battle and war. Does he not first sit down and deliberate that he with the 10,000 soldiers can meet a man with 20,000? Should he not go to war to win? Should he not be victorious? Jesus' answer, of course, is yes. But here we find our Lord Jesus Christ in what is called his triumphal entry. His victory. It's not as though victory is wrong, but it must be properly defined. Jesus Christ has given us this image most overtly in his own life. That as he is approaching the temple on the feast of Passover, he is doing this to show that our life, our victory, how we win, it is in onward an upward procession into a closer communion in the presence of God. That's the point. That is how we win. That we were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is, our whole life, we desire progress, we desire growth, we desire to succeed. But where is that channeled? How should we succeed? How should we grow? How should we progress? How should we be victorious? It is a onward and upward progression into the very presence of God. That is it. Everything in our life should be oriented toward that one motion because that is where we go. That is the whole point of Jesus' gospel, his salvation, his entrance into the world. He comes down to bring us up. We are made for eternal life. We are made for crowns that cannot falter. We are made to bask in the glory of God. That is our glory. That is our victory. You will win a race and you will not be depressed. You will not get old and fat and die. You will finish a race and enter into the temple of God's glory and live with Him forever. 
soaking in his love. That is winning. And that's the exact image of Jesus' own victory. That if you give yourself to this race, you will not be disappointed. You will have truly won. Victory must be vertical. See, the image for from him, through him, and to him are all things, Romans says. The image of this victory in the scriptures is a pilgrimage. Right? The point of a Passover is a walking into Jerusalem. That is, everybody from the northern region of the country to the southern region of the country, to even in other providences of the Roman Empire, across all the way to Spain, perhaps. Any Jew who is in that region would walk miles and miles down to Jerusalem. But whenever you get close to Jerusalem, there's a Temple Mount. And so no matter where you came from, you always have to go up to Jerusalem. That's why in the scriptures it always said that they went up to Jerusalem. Even if they were coming from the north to the south, they're always going up. And if they're going from the south to the north, they're always described as going up. Because no matter which direction you go, you are always coming up to the Temple Mount. You are always ascending the hill of the Lord. Your whole image of pilgrimage in Passover is an onward and an upward motion into the very temple of the presence of God on earth. And God commanded this in his law to be done annually as a visible lesson, a representation of a victorious life, to run the race well, to make the voyage to the end, to find yourself crossing the thresholds of the throne room of God. And so this is Jesus, that he would do nothing more than what Psalm 27 says, The one thing I have asked, the goal for your life, of this is the Lord I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire into his temple. That's it. That's all we were made to do, and that is more than enough. So we look to Jesus, the image given to you. Do you see him this way? Matthew shows the image that a prophet, a seer, saw from years ago when he quotes Zechariah 9 9 and says, Behold, Your king is coming to you, and he is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. That's the image. Riding a donkey. Not nimble, not fast, not violent. Entering into a hostile city that is possessed by a Roman Empire and a whole hierarchy of priests who have jurisdiction. The city was in an uproar and said, who is this man? And they responded, it is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. No more insightful words could be said to the priests of Jerusalem. He is from Galilee, not from Judea. He's not from your guild. He is a prophet. He comes with God's divine authority. There haven't been prophets in Israel for hundreds of years. And he's from Nazareth, 
a place that has no reputation or title. Why should he roll up in here with all the praises and shouts of the whole crowd riding as though he has already won? The threat, the table is set. The snare has been had. Jesus has set the hook. They will kill him and he will save them. He's riding the donkey. Not a war horse. He's acting as though he's already won. The triumphal procession into cities is what kings would normally do after they won the battle. They'd get on their fast armored horse. They'd ride out to meet the enemy. They'd conquer the enemy. They'd get off their horse, get on their fancy donkey, and ride back into their city with fanfare and praises from the people. That's how the animals work. First you ride the horse, then you get the donkey. Jesus has just jumped on the donkey. He hasn't fought a battle at all. Humble. Lowly. The tremendous confidence he has, he takes on the messianic proclamation. They say to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're praising him most particularly for his salvation. Hosanna means save, please, or save now. It's a word of praise used for that came to be used for the Davidic king. That they would say, he is our savior. He is our savior. He is our triumph. He is our leader. Hosanna, son of David. And everyone cries it, and everyone sings it, and everyone in the city hears it and says, Who is this man claiming to be king? It's the image of the victorious life, and they quote here the psalm of ascent. Up the hill, Psalm 118, the psalm that would have been sung on the pilgrimage as everyone is always going up to Jerusalem. Psalm 18, the psalm of ascent, which says that this man is Hosanna, son of David. They're quoting a psalm of ascent as Jesus climbs up the hill to enter in to his house, which is a house of prayer. That is, it is all about upward and inward to closer communion with God. The very next thing he does is go to the temple, flip the tables, and say, this is to be a house of prayer. This is to be a place where people commune with God. This is to be a place where people come up to the Lord, even all the Gentile nations. He's confident in his kingship. The priests hear this word particularly from the children. It is the children who are saying, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, son of David. And the priests come to Jesus and say, Do you not hear what they're saying? And with the boldness of a straight face, he looks at them and simply says, yes. He doesn't stop him at all. They have claimed him to be king of the city. And he looks at the rulers of the city in the eyes and says, I know exactly what they're saying. You and I both know what they're saying. I am your king. It's fitting that Jesus would get praise from children as he rides this donkey. You see, as he's been preaching to you and I, 
prior to this, who is the greatest? Those who are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are like small children. Who is the first? Those are the lowest status. Those are the last. Of course then. You see, he knows the way to get there. He's not just a teacher who teaches from a desk. He's a rabbi who leads by the way. He came from the Father, and he returned back to the Father. He will show you the way to the Father. In fact, his name is the way, the truth, and the life to the Father. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And so he models the very humility, the lowering of status that is needed for salvation, that in his inauguration, that in his coronation, he would be happy. Happy to sit on a humble donkey and take the praises of humble children while all the elites and the proud and the powers of this world would be offended by him. Let them be offended for he is the king of the world and he doesn't need anyone to validate that claim. The image all here is of humility that he has lowered himself like a child that he would serve us to save us. Behold, The questions that I know I struggle with, that you would struggle with in your own walk with Christ. When you enter into suffering in your life, you enter into questions or doubts. Do you not have a nagging suspicion in the back of your mind from time to time that you consider, is this because of my sin? Have I made a misstep? Is the Lord rebuking me because of this particular trial or suffering that I undergo? You need to behold your Savior here. All your sins, all your failure and weakness, will He crush you? Will He forget you and reject you? No. The symbol here is that he came to save you. He humbled himself on the colt of a donkey. You see, Matthew tells us that there is particularly a donkey and the colt of a donkey. Only Matthew tells us that there were two animals. When you read Mark or Luke, we're told particularly that he only sat on one of them. That he sat on the colt, the child of the donkey, the weakest the mildest, the most timid. Luke says it was a colt that has never been sat on before. It wasn't trained, now surrounded by large crowds, being shouted at, with timid, little wobbly legs trying to hold up a full-grown man. So much so that the mother had to be by the side. A small, timid, weak animal that needs the constant reaffirmation from mother. This is your Savior. This is how he chose to reveal himself. That is, would he crush you? Would he forget you and let you go? His triumphal procession, this one, is for your salvation. He came to save you by humbly riding on this child of a donkey. If he can identify with such a weak and worthless animal, is he able to save you, you see? If his triumphal entry is inaugurating his glorious reign on the wobbly legs of a timid animal like this, 
Is he not able? Can he not able to be able to deal tenderly with you and your heart and your sin? This is how he identifies himself as weak and lowly. We're called to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. And therefore cast all our cloaks upon him as we cast all our cares upon him. You see the people there as the donkey is led through. The image of Jesus Christ riding a small little donkey with a mother close by and all the crowd shouting. There is no way he's taking over the city from this position. There's no way he's coercing. There's no way he's subduing. There's no way he's a military victor. He's a humble servant. He wobbles on these weak legs of a small animal. And as he enters through, people take off their coats and throw them on the ground. You are able to cast your cares upon him. If this is how he identifies himself, if this is how he saves, by being so weak and so tender, can he not save you? Maybe the legs of that donkey are too weak for you to put all the weight on. But the Savior sitting on that little child of a donkey will save the world and he is mighty to save. For example, we are commanded in 1 Peter 5, 6, cast all your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. I've talked to many over the years, particularly in counseling, particularly with anxiety. They have an issue with their children. They have an issue with a loved one or a job or a budget or a bill or a marriage And almost every time, we eventually hit up into a wall in which this verse, cast your cares upon him. And they say, I can't do that. It's not, it doesn't work that way. I, I wake up in the morning and I think the thought. I'm driving in the car and it floods upon my soul. I'm trying to give it to Jesus, but I can't. I'm constantly weighed down and burdened by these anxious concerns of mine. The problem is that if you cannot cast your cloak before Jesus Christ, you cannot cast your cares upon Him. Do you see what they're doing with their cloaks? They're taking them off. And laying them as if it were a red carpet for the king. But it's not a red carpet. They're cloaks of poor peasants who are traveling to the city. It's a poor man's red carpet. And Jesus is happy to associate with it. And the cloak is the most intimate thing that they possess. In the ancient world, the cloak was no simple garment. It cost money to buy. They were usually sewn together as one piece. There was something someone wore for a good portion of their life. It was what they slept in. It is what kept them warm and dry and kept them away from the sand and the wind. 
In Deuteronomy, God's law commands that you could never take a cloak from a poor man. Because it was the last valuable thing he owned. The last thing to his possession. The last thing to his name. He needed it to be warm that night to sleep. But these people, taking off their cloaks, laying it there for triumphal procession, for a humble king riding a humble donkey, with humble people. Yes, he can care for you. See, the reason, if you cannot cast your cloak, that is, all of your possessions, that is, as Luke 15, in Jesus' warning, that if you cannot renounce all that you have, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. That you must even cast your clothes before him. Every possession you have before him. Knowing that All those are the cares that He cares for you. Because what are cloaks except possessions? They're things that we own. And it tends to be that the cloaks that we have happen to be the cares of our life. A man who's very wealthy, owns great possessions, ends up being anxious about his wealth. Or a woman with great health is worried about her great health. A mother who cares for her children is worried about her children. But see... They're not yours. Your money isn't yours. Your children aren't yours. Your health isn't yours. The shirt on your back isn't yours. If you can release that, if you can cast your cloak before your king, your cares will follow. You'll be free to realize that your children are God's children. Your money is God's money. He'll manage it. Your health, your breath, yes, even your clothes, don't worry. Cast them away. Lay them before this mild servant. If he will ride a donkey like this for you, weak and mild and humble and timid, Would he not care for all the cloaks you cast before him? Will he not watch over all your cares? Can you not cast your cares upon him? Will he not care for you? Hear afresh Jesus' words. Do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat and what you will drink, nor your body about what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Cast it all away. This is our gospel. A humble servant, encircled in praises of humble children, riding, on humble animals, and covered by humble cloaks. Yet Jesus Christ is victorious because they took those palm branches also. Symbol of victory. You see, nine score and 17 years ago, Israel had a revolutionary war of independence. The Hasmonean dynasty came, and Israel was governing itself. And on the coin of that time, There were palm branches. So what these people were doing is nothing more than waving their Nike symbol, laying it before Jesus' great victory, 
but misappropriating the whole thing and realizing he has not come to go into the citadel of Rome and destroy them on the colt of a donkey. He's going into the temple to purify it and make a way to heaven. For this is the victorious life. Onward and upward progression to closer communion in the holiness of God's presence. One thing we have that we will seek to dwell in the house of the Lord and to inquire into His temple. Dear Father God, Lord, we ask for You to open this temple to us in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, to open this temple to us, we rest upon the Lord who is powerful, not on the animal he rides or the cloaks he trods or the songs we sing. Lord, we have this image of your tender mercy toward us, that if you can treat us as you would even the smallest of animals, love us like the smallest of children, O Lord, we cast all our cares upon you, that you might lead us on in triumphal procession. Lord, that you might usher us into the presence of God. We ask, Father, for a greater growing from glory to glory in the manifest presence of God in our life, that we would have sweeter communion with you. Lord, we pray particularly that you would remove patterns and sins in our life that break our communion with you. Lord, that you would bring us into this temple, that all of our life would be oriented toward the one ascension into your throne room. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our way, our truth, and our life. To you we praise all be honor and glory. Amen.